Our speaker tonight, Dr. Daniel Green, is a defense fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where he focuses on counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and stability operations in the Middle East and Central Asia. He's also a reserve officer with the U.S. Navy. Rather than repeating the introduction uh, to Dr. Green that you've all received, I would like to just read you a paragraph from the foreword in this book. We'll give you some knowledge of him. Uh, this book, by the way, which will, is for sale outside at our special Westminster Price, is, as you will see on the jacket, highly endorsed by uh, General John Allen, uh, General David Petraeus, uh, Peter Bergen, and others. And also, we're very happy to have the publisher from the Naval Institute Press, Claire Noble, with us tonight. And her husband, Jeff, is here, too. <laughs> so, so, so let me read you just this paragraph from the foreword, written by a Green Beret colleague of our speaker tonight. Speaking of uh, Dan Green, he says he was in the Pentagon on 9-11 and saw the war on terror at its very inception. But unlike most in Washington, he was determined to get on the ground and do something about it. He went on to serve in Uruzgan uh, province, Afghanistan, with a provincial reconstruction team as a State Department civilian in a policy advisory role in the office of the Secretary of Defense. As a naval officer in the coalition headquarters in Kabul, in Iraq, during the Anbar Awakening, and back to Uruzgan as a tribal advisor with Navy SEALs and U.S. Army Green Berets. For his extraordinary service, Dr. Green's received the State Department Superior Honor Award and the U.S. Army Superior Civilian Honor Award for his work in Afghanistan. He was also personally commended by General Peter Pace when he was chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's also, uh, this is your third book. Yes, I look forward to meeting this person too. So. Number three. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm going to suggest to you is you watch the video and see yes. if you can recognize it. <laughs> so the first book reflecting on his first year of experiences in Afghanistan is called The Valley's Edge, a year with the Pashtuns in the heartland of the Taliban then co-authoring with Brigadier General William uh, Mullen, uh, Fallujah Redux, The Anbar Awakening, and the Struggle with Al-Qaeda. Most recently, he contributed a chapter to a book with the less than sanguine title, Our Long Latest Longest War, Losing Hearts and Minds in Afghanistan. He's here to talk to us tonight about his new book, in the Warlord's Shadow, Special Operations Forces, the Afghans, and their fight against the Taliban. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Green. Thank you very much for coming. I appreciate the introduction. I uh, hope I live up to it. Um, I wrote the book for a variety of reasons. I think I know many of you here have served in Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times or in similar you know, parts around the world. Um, and the benefit of having uh, five tours altogether in Iraq and Afghanistan, starting in 05, 06, and recently finishing in 15 and 16 in Baghdad, Iraq, doing another mobilization, 
as you start to get a little bit of wisdom about these conflicts and how our government wages these, these wars. Um, and of course, war is a very personal thing. We all have our individual experiences, but I've tried to, uh, at least through my own personal experience, aggregate what I've seen at the, the, the ground level, uh, working in OSD policy, working at the State Department. Um, I also, I didn't mention this, but I was a Bush Cheney political appointee as well for eight years. So I have kind of a political background, an academic background, a naval background, uh, State Department background. Um, my resume looks like I can't keep a job, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I can assure you it somehow meshes together in a useful, interesting way, and hopefully you'll, you'll agree with that assessment. Um, since you shared, shared a little bit about my background, um, this particular book that I wrote is sort of a reaction to a lot of how memoirs are typically written about wars, especially irregular wars or small wars. Um, you know, most memoirs are first-person accounts written by junior officers from combat arms, whether they're Navy SEALs, the Green Berets, or infantry, the Marines. Um, it's typically a book about their first tour. It's typically about shaping and clearing operations, as we would call it, um, the counterinsurgency uh, language. Um, typically, uh, if locals are mentioned in these books, they're usually shooting at you. Uh, and if they aren't shooting at you, they're typically hard luck cases, a medical emergency of someone, uh, a beloved interpreter, uh, something, someone of that nature. Um, and then you don't really have a, a sense of the local history of where the soldier, sailor, airman, marine is serving. You don't have much of a historical perspective on that area. So you don't have much of a context other than what you see through you know, your rifle scope. Um, and then typically memoirs sort of disappear after the 03, 04 level, uh, and they reemerge at the general officer level, typically as the general retires. And there are a smattering of memoirs in the middle, usually by staff officers who've been wronged in some way, and they feel the need. Uh, you know, we don't know anyone like that, I'm sure, but <laughs> um, those are rather riveting, I would say. But um, so, you know, if you're a, an American who supports your country and wants your country to do well and win these conflicts, uh, you don't have any direct exposure or experience to the military or anything, you know, to, to do with these conflicts, you're sort of hard-pressed. Um, you get a lot of these really riveting first-person shooter kind of memoirs, but you don't really have a long-term view on the war. Um, you have journalists that will come in and write up uh, perspectives on the conflict, and even uh, movies, for example. Uh, movies about irregular wars typically are much more political, they're much more charged, or they're sort of um, focusing on a narrow mission that didn't go well, like Lone Survivor, um, or you know Chris Kyle's uh, book about American Sniper. Um, so you don't really have, it's hard to sort of capture irregular wars in popular culture. So the book I wrote here is an attempt to sort of address some of these shortcomings. I was fortunate enough to serve in a province called Aruzgan twice, um, almost two years altogether, and my tours were separated by seven years. So I got to see the province initially in 2005, 2006 with the State Department, and then I went back seven years later with the military. Um, my first tour there in the province was with the State Department. I was a political officer in, a, in the province, and I was an advisor to a provincial reconstruction team, which I know many of you know um, about what that is, but pretty much it's a civil military team focused on good governance, reconstruction, and development, um, and works very closely with the local governor and provincial council and tribal leaders of a province. Um, and then I got a chance to go back seven years later with the, the Navy as a mobilized reservist, and I was attached to one of our SEAL team elements, and I was their tribal political advisor for these, you know, uh, pro for the province and for the tribes and kind of navigating, you know, these relationships. Um, but a lot of my experience is sort of a, you learn things as you go on each of these tours. So 0506, um, being the political advisor, my role is to just understand 
pretty much everything and anything that went on in the province that could impact local politics. But we didn't really have much of a blueprint for this. There was no off-the-shelf book on all the local tribes and leaders in history. It was pretty much a blank slate. So I thought that was great because I'm a social scientist, so I was unleashed on this unsuspecting population and got to interview all these wonderful Afghan tribal leaders, figure out the names of the tribes, their, the settlements, what, what did you do during the Mujahideen? What did you do during the Taliban? Really recreate, figure out this wonderful maze, you know. And I know individuals who are doing this all over Afghanistan. So there I got a, a, a sensitivity to how important like tribes are, local governance, these kind of micro histories. Then I served in uh, Iraq in 07 uh, with the Navy. I was attached to another SEAL team. And I was their tribal kind of outreach officer for the Fallujah area just before the Ambar Awakening uh, showed up in Fallujah. So through that job, I got to see how we worked with tribes and operationalized relationships to provide security, how you could actually have success in counterinsurgency when you saw the city flip from 780 security incidents in March of 07 to less than 80 in October of 07. What came together for that to, to occur? Uh, then I went back to Afghanistan in 2010 at a three-star command which is not fun at all generally, especially if you're a junior officer. Um, colonels aren't even treated well there, so uh, I got to see things kind of at the macro level. And then I got to go back to Aruzgan in 2012, and then I just recently went back to Iraq in 1516, uh, reinventing the wheel you know, yet again. Um, I was a tribal outreach officer there, reconnecting with some tribal leaders we'd worked with uh, in Ambar, uh, and then realizing again, we have constant rotations and people don't remember the lessons we've learned. Um, so this book in particular, it's about one province, but it's really about special operations forces over the history of the conflict. It's as much a history or an intellectual history of special operations from 9-11 to about 2016 um, as much as it, as it is a memoir. And it's really trying to trace the intellectual development of a series of concepts that uh, have a lot of catchphrases now like persistent presence, by, with, and through, a bottom-up approach, um, uh, these kinds of things that um, are, you know, are very much known in the counterinsurgency world. But in 2010, special operations community came up with a program called Village Stability Operations. Uh, it was this bottom-up approach of providing enduring local security that reimagined how soft was going to be used. So instead of helicoptering in or doing a direct action raid on a village and leaving, it said we're going to have persistent presence. Instead of security being something that was done to the local population, it was something that was done with the local population. Instead of seeing it as purely a kinetic approach, it actually said kinetic was only in the service of local governance, tribal empowerment, and listing locals in their own defense. It was a holistic approach, so it also addressed simultaneously uh, the, the governing component, the psychological component, the development component, um, as much as the security component. And it was a dispersed strategy. In a lot of ways, it was sort of using the Taliban strategy and structure against it. Uh, and and, and in so doing, was very effective, very um, fundamentally sort of changed the conflict where it was applied. Now, of course, the thing about these kinds of programs is they are very much contrary to how our bureaucracies are organized and designed and, and how we incentivize careers. Um, and typically, I think, as, as, our, as Americans, we usually get the war right just before we leave. Um, and usually when we start these kind of irregular wars, we're the most confident in our abilities, but the least wise. And usually by the end of it, we're very wise, but we're the least confident. Um, and so this is a, a very late program, 2010, you know, nine years into the war, this program was finally kind of came together. And I traced the evolution of thinking over time. Um, 
And so essentially the Village Stability Operations Program said, look, you know, we can clear villages and valleys with our own forces in perpetuity, the only limit being U.S. appetite to accept casualties, right? And frankly, the wear and tear on our forces. And they said, you know, there's got to be a better way. And a group of mostly Green Berets, and many who contributed to it, but I think the core were these Green Beret soldiers, officers who had been in the conflict for multiple, multiple rotations. You know, they cleared the same villages and valleys. They had seen the Anbar awakening where tribes had risen up against Al-Qaeda in Western Iraq, which sensitized people to, to tribes. And they said, there's got to be a better way of doing this. There's a limit to kill capture missions. They're absolutely essential, but there's a limit. And so they said, how can we do this? And so we kind of got to a point where we we're not only wiser about the way of waging these kinds of wars, but also smarter about Afghan culture. We realized that stability can't happen in Afghanistan, but it has to be in the Afghan cultural context. It's got to be reflective of the Afghan culture. And so this institutional adaptation to Afghanistan came about in 2010. And essentially it was a, a the numbers varied, but around 120 or 130 dispersed sites across the country in rural uh, districts of Afghanistan where Green Beret and SEAL elements would live in a village for their whole tour. They wouldn't just visit the village, they'd live there for the whole period of time. And they would analyze the tribal and local dynamics, trying to figure out what, uh, you know, friction there exists between villages or tribes or leaders. Um, you know, was there a water dispute? Was there a dispute about access to a road? These kinds of things that often drove local conflicts that the Taliban would take advantage of. Once they'd done these assessments, they'd start to have outreach meetings with local elders. And so they would convene these local shuras. And through the, these engagements, you start to empower elders to have some control over their own destiny. And from these engagements, you say, look, we've got this great program called Village Stability Operations, or Afghan Local Police. You volunteer your young men from your village. We will vet them, we will train them in your village, and they'll get a small salary from the Afghan government. They'll get a uniform, AK-47, some rounds, and construction materials to build checkpoints. And they'll live in your village, you'll be protecting your people, your families, uh, and that's all we ask of you. And essentially you'll be supported by the Afghan National Police in the area. They'll control your pay, your logistics, your supply. Um, and that's kind of the deal. And the Afghan army will work with you. And these villagers loved it. So you're empowering elders. You're providing them a paycheck through the Afghan government. You're giving them the confidence of being, sort of organizing themselves to resist the Taliban. Um, and it's a great way of essentially robbing the Taliban of manpower. So every local villager who joins with you is one less potential Taliban recruit. And with each community, once you recruit enough uh, local villagers, you kind of get this tipping point where the village now is able to protect itself. And it's amazing when you see it actually happen. So I talk in the book about a district called Shahidi Asas that I visited in 0506. The district had a forward operating base there called Cobra. Uh, the commander of that often called himself Cobra Commander at the GI Joe. Um, and essentially the, the, the the base itself was surrounded by the Taliban insurgency by 06. Uh, the Taliban had largely mined every road going out from the base, and there was no way you could really pacify the district. Um, and pretty much the special forces team that was there was just there to survive their tour. And in 06, they had a team there that lost, I think, seven people and had 22 casualties for a team that's 40 people. You know, So it was a really bad situation. Um, and you'd only fly there, you couldn't really drive to that district, it was just surrounded. Seven years later, I got to go back to that district in that particular FOB, and we drove there. 
And in the intervening period, this program called Village Stability Operations had been applied to the district. So from one base, we now had four bases. From no local recruits, we had recruited 500 or so, 600 Afghan local police from that district. So instead of going out at night, hitting compounds, coming home, we would have shuras during the day. And each of these checkpoints we would set up with the locals, protected roads, bridges, bazaar shop entrances, things of this nature. And it largely, I would, you know, it's never defeated the insurgency, but it no, was no longer a mortal threat where the Taliban could potentially overrun your base. It forced the Taliban to focus on individual level attacks because that, that's all that they could muster. They could do suicide attacks, they could do assassinations, they could do propaganda to use the you know, media against you and, 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 and you know, people's opinions. Um, but we were driving all over this district. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Um, there were parts of the district I know, thought I would never see in my life and we would just drive around with no problems. And there was just this lattice work of checkpoints all throughout the area. And I talk about a sure we had with the elders there. And the elders were talking about that earlier time we were constantly hitting villages and how this created such mistrust between the people and the government. And we were associated with the government because of that. And how because of this program, because we recognized the elders and we trust them and empowered them, it completely pacified the area. And so this is an approach that essentially is very, very effective. We did it in Ambar province, so in Fallujah, uh, when I was there, we, we helped pacify the city. We recruited local police from every single district in the city, and we had tribal leaders, volunteer young tribal members throughout the rural areas, supporting them the same way we supported Afghan local police. And that completely flipped the security. But the problem with this approach is it's not particularly compelling from a movie standpoint. You know, there's not, you're not gonna have, you have American Sniper, which everyone's like, that's really awesome, but you're not gonna have American Engager, you know, as a movie, right? you know, you know, the highest number of key leader engagements, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's not particularly compelling and it's, it's a much more humble approach. It's very much bottom up. Um, it's less about what we're doing to the Afghans than what we can help them do for themselves. Um, and it's devastatingly effective. Um, that's partly why I wrote this book because this program had, a, it still exists. I'm not sure of its status but it's sort of this brief moment in time where we had wisdom and the right leaders come together to come up with this program. Uh, Bing West, who you may know, wrote a book called The Village. Many of the concepts are similar uh, from that book as well. It combined action platoons of Marines, embedding in villages, raising local popular forces. Um, but this kind of approach is hard, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's usually, you, it's hard to brief, it's hard to convey sometimes. You say, well, we've recruited this number of people, that's an easy metric to measure. Um, but usually, again, we get this right just before we leave. And this approach, while it worked very much in Afghanistan, across the war, uh, not just in Afghanistan now, we're kind of reverting back to this direct action culture, dropping you know, ordinance on, on uh, the enemy, which again, I'm not against that, but you have to do uh, in balance. It's gotta be, a, you know, what's the end state of that? Um, so essentially the book is a memoir and I visit, uh, we had 17 sites in my tour there, we had three provinces. I visit 15 of them and I kind of show you how some sites are really knocking out of the park and others are struggling with it. Uh, I talk about why this might be the case and I kind of came up with a statistical analysis at the end where I got a, this is where the boring part is, uh, I got a regression analysis and did a statistical analysis of these sites to try to figure out why some were successful and others struggled with hopefully improving how we did this. Um, and so it's kind of written from a first-person account because I think people tend to remember things better from first-person accounts than dry sort of academic studies. 
Uh, and then the sort of final chapter, I talk about why are irregular wars um, kind of so difficult for us as a country. And I kind of focus on five major contributing factors. Uh, the first is simply we're organized to fight big nation state wars, do big nation state diplomacy, big nation state development, intelligence gathering, and all that kind of stuff. That's great, and we need that. Um, but these problem sets have elements of that, uh, but they're fundamentally different um, than those sort of factors. Um, a second contributing factor is civil, mil civil military relationships. Um, if you look at like, this is not how people know this, but the National Defense Re uh, Reorganization Act of 1958. I know all of you are acquainted with it, but let me refresh you uh, here. So that act essentially took the chiefs of staffs out of the chain of command. And in, you know, President Eisenhower was an advocate for it. It was seen as a, an act that solidified civil military control. But what it did is it robbed this, I think, connective tissue between the fielded forces and those in Washington. So you don't have a feedback and leadership loop that you used to have in World War II. Um, I'm a big fan of Mark Perry, and I really enjoyed his book, uh, Partners in Command, about George C. Marshall and Dwight D. Eisenhower. And you see through their correspondence how each one kept the other informed how Eisenhower would suggest that a general officer be removed from command and, and Marshall would help with that. Marshall became aware of what's on the ground through Ike. You know, Ike became aware of DC deliberations and you had the institution of the army kind of leading this conflict. I think that has been a significant weakening of our ability to conceive of these plans better, to implement them more faithfully and to adjust when we have to. Mm -hmm. Because what happens I think is you essentially make the, the Secretary of Defense politically vested in a strategy Whereas if he had a Joint Chiefs of Staff that was a mediating layer, um, that would allow him to sort of change course through accepting the counsel of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now they're simply focused on train and, you know, train and equip versus running these wars. So that's a, one factor I'd point to. Another aspect of that is the professionalization of our military. It has been very good for us. Obviously we don't have to plus up in an emergency like we used to for World War I and World War II and other conflicts. But I think there is a, uh, negative aspect of professionalism that we don't often think about or talk about. Um, the constant need of career rotations has caused us to have a lot of generalists when these kind of wars need experts and uh, uh, people who have specialized knowledge. There's a careerism mentality that inhibits our ability to adapt to these conflicts. Um, I would also say that the carving out of the special forces community from the Army made the Army a little bit more conventional in its thinking um, and less able to adapt to these conflicts. Um, another aspect of this is complex narratives of victory. You know, you can say in the Gulf War that victory was kicking Iraq out of Kuwait. How do you convey that similar message for Iraq or Afghanistan? It's much more complex. Uh, another factor is, again, how we um, remember these wars. We tend to misremember them in literature and popular movies uh, so that future generations kind of focus on clear and clearing and shaping operations versus holding, building, and transition, you know. Uh, it's hard to write a compelling book about meetings with tribal elders. I think they're interesting, but you know, it doesn't, doesn't engage the senses of like the regular person in the military, right? Um, and then I think the last part of this is simply our political system. It's very much focused on short-term uh, things. We fight these long wars with short-term strategies. And there's no irregular warfare constituency in Congress. There's very much one for potential big wars, you know, jobs tied to contracts, things of this nature, but um, any sort of other uh, aspects of it have very shallow roots. And that's, just, that's true as well in the bureaucracy. So aspects of the bureaucracy that fight these wars well, 
Um, they tend to be the, the marginal offices that no one, everyone counsels you when you join the agency or wherever you're going, the government. Well, that's career dead ender, but those are the offices you need for regular work. So for example, um, within USAID, you have the Office of Transition Initiatives, OTI. Those people have been worth their weight in gold in these conflicts. Um, within the US military, civil affairs officers are worth their weight in gold. But the movies are always about Green Berets and SEALs. You know? So these are just so th these are aspects of it. So for example, the human terrain system that was created to sort of understand these problems, absolutely essential. Yes, it has challenges like any new program. But those skill sets of understanding populations are absolutely necessary for Somalia, Yemen, Chad, around the world. Um, but now that's been disestablished. You know, all these little adaptations, even like the A-10, which is a crucial weapon of small wars, doesn't have a huge constituency. It, it, thankfully, it keeps being defended. There are always efforts to get rid of it. So these are just like, we are just not well designed to do these kinds of conflicts. Um, and usually we figure them out towards the end, uh, but then by that point it's almost too, uh, it's been too long. So essentially the book is a f an effort to sort of capture some lessons that were learned at a brief period of time, try to talk about that these lessons aren't just specific to Afghanistan, they can be as readily applied in a tailored fashion to other conflicts like Libya, Yemen, Somalia, <coughs> Iraq, and other conflicts. Uh, and then try to make sure we don't misremember this conflict. So to that end, don't limit yourself to one purchase. Feel free to buy multiple copies. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, your country needs you to do that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, if you have an old friend you want to reconnect with, it might be a way to do that. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you tonight and look forward to answering any questions you have. Thank you. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit um, about, from, from your perspective and your experience there in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Um, how the uh, Iran and Hezbollah uh, long time, decades long alliance with and support for the Taliban affected your mission there? Well, I mean, the Taliban also killed a lot of Iranian diplomats, too. So I'm not, I mean, it's an unusual alliance, if that's um, what you're saying. I didn't really see much Iranian activity. I was mostly worried about Pakistani activity in my province. Um, in some of the Shia areas, the Hazaran areas in Afghanistan, it was clear that the Iranian government had been reaching out to those communities. Um, Later in the conflict, or I would say, then, then I was in one uh, mosque, for example, in a Hazaran area that had a lot of Iranian um, posters and propaganda in it. Um, so it's an aspect of it, but it wasn't so much a factor where I was. It was mostly straight, just Sunni insurgency versus uh, you know Pashtun elders and Pakistani officers showing up and causing problems. Your book may not be the stuff of American sniper, but it sounds like it could be an interesting documentary. Have you thought about that? I accept your offer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Yes, thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. It would be great. Uh, but I, I wonder what, you know, cinematically, how we could convey it. You know, it's, yeah, I think it would be great. The, uh, the French in Algeria and the British had a uh, similar uh, organization. They were colonial officers. They weren't right. State Department. They weren't military. Right. The military, the Marines only started their local action program out of necessity. State right. doesn't want to do it. Right. Is it time for the United States to organize a different institution <coughs> stabilization and nation building and other things that neither one really wants to do? Uh, yes, I absolutely agree with you. I've written a lot of articles up to that end. Um, you have to, in assessing like the, the bureaucratic politics of it, um, you've got to hitch it to something that will survive. And I think. I'm kind of inclined to think there may be a political service attached to SOCOM, for instance, that might be able to do that. Um, 
The State Department actually has a reserve army unit that's attached to it that might be a possible place to use, you know. Um, but again, I think it goes back to there's very rarely a constituency that supports these kind of things. Because by the time we get to the point where we actually have some wisdom about it, people say, oh, we're not going to do those irregular war things again. They're too expensive, too hard, kind of the Vietnam syndrome. Um, but I, I completely agree with you. We've got to adjust. We've lost as an American republic the ability to move beyond the limits of our bureaucracy and adapt. You know, we've moved from being a frontier nation to this bureaucratic nation in many ways that um, have prevented our ability to adapt to these conflicts. Um, and I absolutely agree with you. Thank you very much. I, I, I loved everything you said. Oh. I loved every lesson learned, et cetera. Mm. What leaped out at me is you know, your comment about uh, a colonial uh, approach, which is not our mandate, not our history to be colonialists. And there's nothing about what you were describing that was a defense of the homeland. It was colonialism. Why are we there? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's colonialism. Um, you know, our country was born out of an insurgency, right? Uh, I, I think it's an, a truly American approach to doing this. It's an empowerment approach. It's a humbler approach. You know, I'm a big fan of making sure that we don't have attacks come from <coughs> Afghanistan again. And that, um, you know, I, I think I think there's a unique American way of doing that. There are there are people within the military and State Department who like to do this, who know how to do it, but their careers are not incentivized to do it. You know. Uh, I was fortunate I did a State Department tour and a military tour, and that's simply by accident. It was by, by no means a designed kind of effect. Um, but I think there are people who are willing to do it, but they need this bureaucratic off-ramp to get out of this need to constantly move up or constantly rotate. And the Afghan Hands Program was an attempt to do that, um, and I think it's absolutely a correct um, idea. But like a lot of these uh, you know, ideas from Afghanistan and adapted to these conflicts, they had a lot of bureaucratic opponents, and there were some challenges with it. But to me, that's just an invitation to keep perfecting it. Yeah. I, I am not criticizing the approach. I think, yeah. I think the approach was absolutely wonderful and, and perfect. I'm questioning the mission. Sure. I, you know, I think we had adopted an approach that you're, I think you're advocating when we pulled out of Afghanistan the first time you know, after the Soviet Union had withdrawn and eventually you know, the communist government had fallen in 1992. So I think there was a little bit of lessons learned from that, saying we need to have some persistent engagement or persistent presence. But I think how we went about it creates the antibodies for the actual way of doing it. You know, finally, once you finally figure it out, you've actually burned through these other approaches, which burned all the goodwill and support for the conflict. But anyway, I agree. We'll, we'll talk later for sure. <laughs> yeah, I have the mic now. Yes, sir. Uh, the have you read the recent book by Max Booth? Uh, oh, about uh, Edward Lansdale? So, what you've written sounds like your philosophy is basically the same. I've read I've read Lansdale's uh, memoir in the midst of wars. I have started reading Max Boot's book about it, um, and I agree. You know, he's another example. He's a bureaucratic outlier. Came out of the OSS, joined the agency, became an Air Force officer, and he was always a uh, uh, on the bureaucratic margins. You know, and he cut his teeth with McSaysay in the Philippines. Um, but he never got the traction that he could yeah. because of Westmoreland. Overcame and, him too. Right, exactly. And I think I think he's got you've got to design it in such a way that it 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 is able to survive political change and political people getting elected or not elected, and recognize as bureaucratic peer competitors. There's a way of doing it, I think. But 
we're, I think we're at that point now in the conflict where we're just getting rid of all these institutional adapt adaptations. Human training systems have been done away with. You know, all these different things like that are being done away with. Um, it's almost like uh, when they created SOCOM, right? Special operations are always kind of this marginalized by the conventional forces. And eventually they decided to institutionalize it in a big push. I think that's what you're going to need. But yeah. I have another question if I might. You know, Afghanistan is a country that can't really afford, afford itself. Right. The amount of money it can raise is not as much money as it needs to spend. Now, you said the program was working because the Afghan government was paying the soldiers, was paying the police that we were mm -hmm. training. Mm -hmm. But you know, those funds came from the United States or from the sure. international community in the first place. Right. And it has to be the only way it can be sustained is with outside support. And it's, Afghan history has always been that. Right, exactly. Of course, um, I think you need a light, lean, and long term approach there. I think a lot of these sort of um, ugly American tendencies of how we wage these conflicts started to arrive really large and in charge in 2009, 2010. Uh, you know, as you may know too, they discovered quite a, a collection of minerals in Afghanistan, the Geological Service. Obviously there are aspects of that that make it hard to exploit, but there's a potential for them to be more self-sustaining. But I think you have to be there in a way that's light, lean, and long-term. Like when we were there, when I was there in 05, and we didn't know we were the poor war, um, that forced us to be more humble in our approach, made us rely on indigenous structures and leaders much more readily. Uh, and I think that's the right way to do it. I think you can do this, but if you've got to be willing to take more risk. You've got to organize yourself that more dispersed manner. Um, and there's a whole lot of sort of institutional things you have to do to make it work. But I think the big thing is dealing with the Pakistan problem. That's, that's probably why we're all talking about it here in 2018, I think. Yeah. When you talk about the Pakistan issue, and the problems you had, were those from Pakistani Army or ISI? I, I say around the book, uh, Pakistani intelligence officers. <coughs> yeah. There were, I mean, the thing we had, the Afghan local police, once they got set up, you know, they would see someone planting an idea. I talk about in the book how Afghan local police picked up the Pakistani intelligence officers. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talk about them very readily. I mean, there's no, there's no you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. That's why I, why I draw attention to it. You know. <coughs> So, uh, thank you very much. I, it, fascinating explanation. I really got, learned a lot from that. So, looking forward, um, five years, two years, one year, whatever, we're at war with Iran. Um, oh, okay. Genetic war. <laughs> serious war. All right. Uh, how would you suggest applying what you have learned over low these many years to that type of a conflict? Uh, I, I, at the Institute, I write about uh, Yemen a lot these days, so I'm more familiar with what Iran is doing in Yemen with the Houthis, etc. Um, this approach can be adapted to a situation like that. I think this is a strategy that works better for Iranian proxy wars than it might be for big nation-state wars. Um, I, but I think the bottom-up approach absolutely works. It's very devastating. Like, um, if you look at Al-Qaeda in Arabian Peninsula and Yemen, you know, they've got a population-centric approach now. Um, they're very much rhetorically, but also just through some of their actions, have local governing programs to try to get these hearts and minds. That's exactly what this is. This is not just a security program. It was a governing program. It was a tribal empowerment program. Um, it was just a, you know, essentially it's a people's war, to use a phrase from the Cold War. Um, and that, I think that approach can be very devastating. But again, it, it's all about, it doesn't have to be U.S. necessarily, as long as the functions are being performed. It could be the UAE, for example, who are doing a lot of this in Yemen. But the concepts, I think, are sound. I mean, it's, it's kind of, but it's just you have to adapt them to each situation. Yeah. 
like the others, I want to thank you for that very clear presentation. Uh, and to me, the very depressing lesson that we never learn the lessons. Right. Every time there's an next war, we go in. After we screwed it up, we learn better. By then, we're too tired of it. The next time around, it's the same thing all over again. Right. And the question is, why don't we learn? Mm -hmm. And you've given an answer, which was a very good answer on, on an institutional level. Our institutions screw it up. Right. But I'm not satisfied that that's the main part of the answer. I'm satisfied that that's a very useful part. Right. But it seems to me that we have to look also to ideological factors. Why are we allergic to learning? Mm -hmm. uh, this, this gentleman's comment, we don't want to be colonialists, I think goes close to that. Mm -hmm. We don't learn from others who have had the business of nation building, pacification, throughout history, certainly, and very much in modern history, mm -hmm. because our national mythology is to despise that and feel we're more <coughs> superior to any such kind of thing. You said your approach is humble. His approach was humble. Everyone's out to prove they're more humble. Mm -hmm. Uh, all the last four presidents have come in promising to be more humble. humble. <laughs> I want us to promise to get it right, not right. to be either arrogant or humble, but to right. try to get it right, right, which generally we don't do until it's too late. I'm wondering, would you add some ideological factors to your explanation, and how can we deal with them? Because I don't think the institutional ones, important mm -hmm. as they are, right. will solve no, I, I, mean, I talked a lot also, also about how we misremember these conflicts, you know, how we chronicle them or mischronicle them in books and movies. Um, this is, for example, like in think tanks. Um, you know, I work at a think tank that is focused on the Middle East, uh, has very strong views on uh, certain issues. Um, it's funded by U.S. citizens. Um, but I write on Yemen. You know, there's, uh, and I'm kind of the redheaded stepchild there. They support me completely, but but it's not it, it's not a career enhancing move to focus on a country like Yemen. It is these days because of Al Qaeda. But where is the institution that has the Chad expert, or the Mali expert, or you know these kind of places? So we have a bias not just in our government but also in our institutions that um, inform the government as much as echo some of its views and challenge them. Um, big nation states. I can have a heck of a great career if I focused on China. It'd be great, right? If I was a Russia expert, I'd probably do okay still, you know. But but if, where's the institution that has all these small states? You know, if you're for, there are a lot of what I call um, academic nomads. There are people in the world who have a great passion for Somalia, Yemen, these kinds of countries. But because of how our academic institutions have changed and become much more focused on um, rigor and statistical analysis and things of this nature, these are experts who are often homeless. Uh, there's a scholar who I think very highly of named Stephen Day, who's written voluminously about Yemen. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at Rollins College, and his dissertation was published by Cambridge on Yemen. It's actually a, fa a fabulous work, but you know he's at Rollins College as an adjunct. And I love Stephen Day, you know, but this but he's not so unique, you know. And so I wish there was a think tank that had all these small nation states, you know, of scholars to give them a home to inform policy. Because how do you fund a think tank? You know, like academia, because of the methodological revolution, is much more rigorous, but they're less relevant. And think tanks are more relevant, but they're less rigorous. And so there's got to be some balancing point there. But again, who's going to fund a Somalia expert and a Chad expert? And a, you know, who was an Afghan expert before 9-11? There are a few. But everyone kind of saw them as, you know, well, that's interesting. That's not a career, my, my young man. You know, you need to do something different. So. Yeah, Michael. Thank you very much for a stimulating talk. A couple of questions. Yeah. What's happened to Ozergan? since you left, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, do the regional powers, Egypt, for example, or the UAE you mentioned, uh, 
do they, in, in fighting the wars in Yemen or the Sinai or the Western Desert, do they, have they imbibed any of the wisdom that they learn when they come here for, to the United States for training? Mm -hmm. are, are some of these techniques incorporated in the Egyptian army or, or SOF? Is there an Egyptian SOF? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I don't think the Egyptians were in Afghanistan, but the UAE definitely were. No, I mean in Sinai. I'm not as familiar with that campaign. I, I, I strongly suspect they don't have much of a hearts and minds approach, but um, I know UAE uh, has done multiple, multiple years in Afghanistan, and they've actually adopted a lot of these ideas and are using them in Yemen, uh, to be honest with you. Um, so I, that's very encouraging, I think. So. And Uzurgan? Uh, so so Ruzgan, um, we transitioned the province to Afghan control in 2012, and I would say in 2012, it was a wise decision. You know, most of the Taliban attacks were these individual level attacks. It was hard for them to scrape together 30 people to do a, you know, some sort of operation. Whereas six years previously, you get 250, 300 Taliban try to attack a forward operating base, the goal of overrunning it. As we drew down, um, and, and we tended to go more force protection conscious, um, the Taliban predictably used internal safe havens in some parts of the country we hadn't pacified started to you know, chip away at logistical support networks for the Afghan army. Uh, the Afghan army, for instance, you know, they're not locals, so they often aren't particularly incentivized to protect local communities, but Afghan national police and local police are. But you need all three of those institutions working together because they check and balance each other pretty effectively. And so the Taliban tried to retake a Ruzgan. Um, we predictably went back you know, to try to, you know, oh, they've plussed up to conventional size, so we're gonna smash them back down to insurgency size. And that's kind of where we're at now. I'm not exactly as well versed on that. Now I can tell you more about the ISIS campaign now because that's been my latest tour, but um, yeah. Um, my name is Akbar from the Afghan Embassy. I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Jane, for the book and the talk. Um, <clears throat> this is what we need, um, uh, the Afghans, actually. Mm. <clears throat> a better understanding of the Americans uh, of Afghanistan. Uh, real problems and uh, and books, even even if they are boring, like uh, as you say, those are the books that we need to My write. book is absolutely <laughs> riveting. Because at the same, similarly, we have a problem with us, the image of Afghanistan as a... So we had to, but um, um, 
Yeah, as I said in the beginning, thank you for, for all the work you did. Yes. And hopefully people, more people read books like yours and, you know, those snipers and Hollywood stuff. That, right. uh, you know, they, they, they are just, they are hurting us. And they, they right. are hurting the, Ameri the image of America in right. Afghanistan too. Right. The Yankees with their, you know, right. gun. Right. Um, um, which uh, Afghans, <clears throat> if, if my father was, was a Mujahideen fighting the Soviets. We were refugees in Iran when the Soviets came in. And at home, we were living in Iran. At home, my father, he, he's not illiterate, but the few names he knew still, he rem remembers President Reagan. Mm. Because he was our friend. He gave, us, he gave him guns and money, and uh, he fought the Soviets. Mm -hmm. um, most of the Afghans, as you know, are traditional Muslims. They don't really know Arabic. They don't. Mm. Uh, it's difficult to radicalize them because of those, those fundamental um, differences. Right. Um, and hopefully, and still, that's that's a big potential for for uh, stabilize Afghanistan with the, the population that mm. we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more we know about those people, not about. ISIS trains or Al Qaeda affiliated mm -hmm. groups that are very, very um, small. Right. I mean, I'm a Taliban, you know, they're different. Um, the, the better that the US policies and um, uh, the, the American public opinion can help us make yeah. this, you know, conclude this war. Right. Well, that's it's, one of the things I tried to do in the book was try to talk about the Afghans in a way that. Or they didn't make them targets. They weren't intelligence sources. They weren't shooting at you. You know, to really humanize the the, the, the Afghans in a, in a Ruzgan province, to show the histories, show the the background, show the the stories, make the reader understand and sympathize with their challenges, show that there are is great variability in the Afghan community. There are heroes, there are victims, there are bad people. They have nothing to do with the Taliban, and just show the complexity of the reality of these tours. Because I'd have my tour and I'd come back and the way the war was talked about at home was very different from the way I'd experienced it, which prompted me to wonder why that was the case. And then I don't do other things. The last sentence was that the thing I yeah. was one American um, senior official in Kabul. Hmm. said, why, why are you helping us? Like, you know, we like the underdogs. We like, we like to help you because we know your southern neighbor is um, pushing your hand in hmm. the way that should not. It's not fair. Great. So thank you. I mean, as a, putting aside being a government official as an Afghan, I got my education and the, the government that we have over there and the, the good economy we have. I mean, there, these are the stuff that people don't talk about. Afghanistan yeah. is very richer and uh, well off now. Well, I'll put you down for a hundred copies then to give <laughs> to give to the I, Afghan leaders. I, I appreciate. That's very kind, sir. You see it. We're all witnesses. Thank you so much, sir. For, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Enjoyed it a great deal. Could you give us a quick? Uh, you mentioned SEAL teams and you mm. mentioned Green Beret. Right. Could you give us a quick, like what you did actually just going out with a group? Sure. Going sure. to a village and scheduling. Yeah, sure. Um, so when we tried to, we decided to establish a, a village stability platform, is what we would call it. Essentially, as a thing of it as a place that you can have a civil affairs element psychological element, women's outreach element. Um, you'd have civil affairs teams. 
and then you'd have the core of it would be a seal element or a green beret element, we would do a clearing operation first. So we've done, we would do all the homework we could about a district to try to understand who are the tribal leaders, what are the tribes, there, had we been there before in some fashion, had we had a base there that we closed, what have you, we would go in, cleared of the Taliban with Afghan commandos partnered with Green Berets or SEALs, clear out the villages there so there'd be kinetic activity. So at that point, you know, 100% of our activity is kinetic, you know, violence done to the uh, enemy. Once we did that, we would have immediate meetings with the elders, principally with, um, with the village elders, but we try to bring Afghan officials. And we say, look, we're, gonna, we're not leaving. We're going to create a base. We'd like to rent one of your compounds to do this. Okay, great. Um, and we have this program called Village Stability Operations. We want to work with your tribal, uh, your, your village elders, and you help us figure out what young men you think are deserving to defend your village. You know, uh, one of our themes was from the village, you know, from their perspective. And then we start to have this, you know, there's a little bit of building trust, right? So we would have these meetings, we would now build a base, or we'd move into a compound, reinforce it, and we would do a foot patrols. We would start to meet with the tribal elders at weekly, you know, for lack of a better phrase, village council meetings. And then as they got to know us, as, we, as they became aware of the program, they started to recommend their young men uh, to us. And then we would vet them, the Afghan National Police would vet them, the Ministry of Interior would vet them, and we would start training these young men in their home village. So it might be 10 people initially, 20 people, but then as you start to train them, they have, get their uniform, they get their weapon, they, they get their first paychecks, they've gotten like three or four weeks of training, and then we'd help them build their first couple, three, three checkpoints. And we would be there as brothers, right? So the, the activity went from 100% kinetic to fairly quickly once you start getting locals involved, 10% kinetic on your side. You know, it was that tipping point. And then you get, uh, essentially we'd have a, a, a number of about 300 per district, that was our goal. You know, and so once we kind of got to that point, and some villages only needed 150, so that would be fine. And then once you did that, you had all the main roads checked, checkpoints. Um, a guy could have a bazaar shop, and then in the evening he'd do his checkpoint. You know, you'd have these rotations. And then, um, let's say you have 300, they'd have an Afghan local police commander, and then he would answer to the Afghan national police who were full-time. <coughs> so the Afghan government controlled the Afghan local police. Pay, logistics, ammunition, you name it. And once we did that, we started to transition the site to Afghan control. So maybe we'd bring in an Afghan commando unit to live in that village, to continue that partnership. And then we would visit over the course of the months. And a lot of what we would do is also make sure the logistical pieces worked, that the pay got delivered, the ammunition. And a lot of what we did was sort of honest broker stuff. We would work with the Afghan army to make sure, no, he wasn't insulting you, general, at the last meeting, the tribal, you know, just kind of stuff to kind of even out people's personalities and challenges. And that's kind of how we did it, and it was very effective. Because now the Taliban couldn't effectively intimidate the villagers because now they're organized and they have guns and they're supported. It's their, it's their brothers and their cousins, you know, all organized. They couldn't bribe the local officials that well because, you know, we knew that a portion of these salaries would go into the pockets of the elders as well. And then once you had security, the bazaar shops started to open up more, more business started to flow, prices started to go down. Um, and then uh, essentially you had this kind of virtuous sort of cycle that started to set in. And so it was very effective and we just kept expanding that out. Would you do it again? Oh yeah, absolutely. I loved it. I wish I was a few years, I mean I'd love to go back, you know, frankly, but I've, learned, I've done enough of these tours, I only go back with friends at this stage. I'm just tired, because the other thing too is like, you know, you on an individual level, you feel like you're learning all the time, but I go back to the problem of these institutions, you know. And you kind of go back there and they look at you like, 
you're saying things that were common knowledge, you know, five years ago, six years ago, ten years ago, and they look at you like, well, you're crazy. You know, it's, it's just, it, that's what gets wearying about it, to be honest with you. It's just like, my last tour in Iraq was 15, 16, and things I was talking about when it came to tribes in Ambar province, which I had been working in 07, because I think the army was in charge, and the army, while it had forces in Ambar, and some of their units did that, in general, the army as an institution wasn't as involved in the Ambar awakening. And so there are this, this basic common knowledge of the tribes was just really bad. You know, the willingness to take risk wasn't there. And it was just very, so I was like, I was writing all these papers that were just common knowledge when I was there, you know, eight years previously, but now we're like you know, revelations by 2015. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, has uh, the cultivation of opium poppies ever presented a difficulty to our mission uh, well, we, as a rule, would not go after poppy farmers because, frankly, the poppy fields surrounded our bases. And if we did that, I mean, guaranteed, it would be... But we would go after, um, not we, there are certain forces within the general effort who would go after um, the heroin um, dealers and people like that, the smugglers. That's kind of how we would do it. There was also some attempts to have agricultural substitution but it was never that I wouldn't see very serious program. And yes, there was a lot of money spent on it, a lot of people doing good things, lots of patriotic Americans, but I don't think it was as serious an effort as, as it could have been. And sometimes these poppy fields were in areas that were controlled by the Taliban. So to do the anti-poppy, we really had to do a whole military effort to like pacify the area and clear it and then hold it. And you know, we only had so much, you know, many resources and priorities you know, would challenge that. Yes, sir. What you happen to say just now is very upsetting to me because if I understood you correctly, when you were there in 1516, in Iraq, yeah. in, in, in Iraq, in, in Anbar, Fallujah, right. uh, you were with the big army, I take it. Right, right. All right, so by that time, do I understand you to say that? They had forgotten about tribes? No, I think everyone said, hey, yeah, these tribes are really important, but. Had they not read the Marines' history? The, the, well, this goes all back to those yeah. documents that are available to well, them I mean, online. Everyone knew about the Ambar Awakening. Um, I mean, these were these were in detail interviews with the sheikhs. That, uh, that oh, it was a very common question when I first got there. Where are all the files on these things? Online. Right, but yes. So because I was with the Navy, I was so essentially I was in the wrong tribe, in the military tribe. I was in the Navy tribe. <laughs> right, right. And I'm a reserve Navy tribe, so that's even less, you know, like, you know, and yeah, exactly. You know, then I had this PhD, and they're like, what the heck's that? And you know, so that was kind of odd. Um, so that was like working against me. And I was an I'm an 04, so you know, these are colonels who you know who are doing by with and through. They don't have, you know. Uh, Units to lead, so it's all this energy's inside the wire, not outside the wire. Um, you know, so it got tended to focus on its junior officers, um, which which we loved. Um, so I said, hey, hey, there was this Marine Corps thing called the Epic Cell, Economic Political Intelligence Cell. It focused on the human terrain of Ambar Province, and they hung all of their products on a website before they closed it down in 2010, I think. None of them knew about this, so I brought it to their attention. You know. But then we had a tribal engagement cell at the embassy, which would do uh, tribal engagement in Ambar and across the country. Um, they were all military people, but wearing civilian clothes. Um, but they couldn't really leave the green zone. So the tribal leader had to come to us. So you had 
The embassy had some tribal stuff going on, so they had tribal reports from 2011 when we drew down in Iraq till today. The military side didn't really have the records, but we kind of pockets here and there. And then we were doing key leader engagements with Ambar and other tribal leaders when I was there in 1516. So you had to kind of recreate. So what I was doing was a one-man fusion cell. So like two days or three days a week, I'd wear civilian clothes and go to the embassy, work there, do engagements, meet with, I met with a lot of the old Fallujah leaders I had worked with before. Um, the mayor of Fallujah I knew, and he's like, oh my God, you've gained weight. He says, but I look the same. And I was like, thanks, mayor, I appreciate that. You know? <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, these are freedom pounds, as I call them. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it, and so I would take those reports, and then I would go to the Marine website, then I would dust off the Marine reports that had come out, then I would look at you know, Marine, um, other Marine uh, works that had come out, uh, articles, and I would put this all together in one series of documents. So we were looking at the town of Heat, for example, in Ambar province, the Elbu Nimr tribe. So I recreated the whole history of the U.S. experience in that, in that city for our leaders to understand you know, what we were doing. Who were we engaging with today? Who did we used to engage with? We were actually engaging a different side of a tribal family, but no one knew that. But I, I pointed that out, so that was useful. You know, so it just, but that's just, I mean, again, I think because I was this academic, I've been a Bush Cheney guy, I was in the Navy, I was a reservist, you know, I was a think tank guy, I had a sensitivity to these things. But, you know, that's kind of unusual, you know. Thanks so much for your, uh, your talk. A quick question regarding uh, human terrain mapping. What, in your opinion, do you think it's going to take to get it revived? Because right. in, I, I sense from what you're saying that it is very important to give, with all our rotations coming in, right. to give something there for the incoming guy to read the history of what's there. I think if you associate with special operations, that has enough cachet in this town and in politics, and they have a, a great incentive to understand and know that, because they tend to be in these more austere locations, that might be a way of doing it. So if you gave me like the rounding error of the Defense Department of Defense budget, and just gave me that money. Decimal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me the, whatever that number is, like four decimal points after, um, that'd be enough resources you know, to do it. You know? But you also need to be able to inform the DC policymaking process. So you know, because I'm at a think tank, I can testify on Capitol Hill, I meet with journalists, we do roundtables at the Institute, so I have some influence. So when I write about Al-Qaeda, or Yemen for example, I always put Al-Qaeda in the title, because no one would read anything about Yemen. Right? Right? I'd be like, Al-Qaeda and midwives, you know, like, oh, what's this Al-Qaeda thing? You know, like, you know, like, you know, it's like, you know, no one's gonna read it, you know? So I, essentially, you've, you've gotta be like, you gotta scare people to draw the attention. And, you know, and, and so that's replicated across, you know, the only reason we know about Yemen and Somalia is because of Al-Shabaab or Al-Qaeda, you know, in Arabian Peninsula. So I think you need to create that think tank for these academic nomads that kind of maybe associate with the university so that they have that time to kind of walk the halls of Congress and testify and then be available for like NDU and the intelligence community and stuff like that. But, or Georgetown or something? Or GW or whatever, yeah, AU. Um, I like GW mostly because they can walk more readily to places, but I'm not, I'm not you know, wedded to any one institution. But, I mean, I did get my PhD there, but whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I could ask you, um, what did the, People in Uruzgan province think you were doing there. I mean, what, how did they answer? What are the Americans doing? They're like, why are you here? We hate it here. Yeah, no, why? No, why? <laughs> yeah. Get us out of here. Sure, yeah. yeah. No, and, and did you see the answer to that question 
change over your multiple tours? Sure, How sure. they answer? What are you doing sure. here? That's question one. I'll give you okay answer that. Yeah, uh, you know the 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 Afghans I work with in 05, when security was relatively good, we hadn't had a suicide vest attack or car bomb attack yet. The first one was in Kandahar in 05, but my whole tour in 05 in Aruzgan, I went on all sorts of foot patrols as a State Department person. I had meetings all the time downtown. Um, they absolutely loved us there. They welcomed us there. They remember the Mujahideen period, and we supported them. They remember that we had helped bring Karzai back to power because many of the tribal leaders from this province were from his tribe or from his tribal confederation. So they very much welcomed us. Um, yeah, but there were other tribes that, you know, may or may not have been with the Taliban, but we, because we empowered some over the others, that started to create some ill will. So some of those tribes weren't huge fans of us, but they were open to us. But I think this warlord strategy we initially adopted, where we kind of partnered with them, many of these warlords were very zero-sum in how they looked at things. Um, if you were against the government for any reason, which may be poor governance, you've been picked on by the government, you were Taliban. And we didn't have the active curiosity that we would eventually develop about understanding this kind of local stuff. And this is partly why I was there as a State Department guy, was to sort of figure out this, you know, this, all these complexities and try to bring some nuance. I interviewed a Special Forces soldier once in 05. I said, what tribes are these Taliban prisoners you're bringing in? He says, I don't care, I don't know, and I don't care. All I know is there's a reason I was at your, your house last night, you know, hitting it for some reason. I was like, that's exactly the wrong approach. You know, we're being played, and you don't even know it. But because it helps us through our career incentives and other reasons, we tend not to be sometimes as curious. You know, so there's probably been like 45 units that have rotated through Ruzgan since 9/11. You know, multiple nationalities too. You know, so. And uh, just one last question: Could what was the impact of the media that you could observe there? There right. was a, a big effort on our part to help the Afghans create an Afghan national radio. Right. There was a big effort. Um, right away to create 24-7 uh, Pashtudari, Voice of America, uh, Radio Free, right. Liberty <coughs> Broadcasting, which right. we did. Did, did. Was there a discernible media impact where you were operating? You know, when we uh, first arrived in Ruzgan, there was no radio, there were, there were uh, no paved roads, there was no cell phone coverage, um, which I thought was great, by the way, so if the embassy Wanted to get in touch with me. Oh, I didn't get your email. I had an email, but I couldn't. You can't call me. It was great. It was wonderful. But later in the war, we had universal cell phone coverage. Every Afghan who had any money had an iPhone, which is interesting. Um, a lot of Afghans had solar powered chargers on their Adobe huts to recharge their phones. <laughs> right? So, for example, when there would be an incident in, at Bagram, a Quran was burned accidentally or something of that nature we would immediately feel the ripple effect later in the war. Whereas before, we were kind of isolated. You know, so that was you know, a positive and a negative thing, right? So progress, they, they, they erected the last cell phone tower when I was there in 2012, and once that happened, the whole province was open to, to cell phone co you know, coverage. Um, we had a paved road that took a 13-hour drive and made it a three-hour drive that connected the province to Kandahar City, which is huge progress. Uh, but everyone could also check the internet now on their phones. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so yeah, it, it started to impact things, but the Taliban would threaten people, uh, you know, don't watch bad movies on your phones, we know what you're watching. They would sometimes threaten the, the cell phone towers, turn them off, but the Afghans are similar to us. They like their iPhones, they like their phones. So they would yell at the Taliban for turning off the, you know, the tower for their phones. You know, they want, you know. So, it's, so it's a, it was a mixed bag. It was a good thing. It helped us get our message out certainly more readily. It also gave the Afghan government greater ability to get their message out, which was very effective. So, you know, like anything, any technology would make positives and sometimes some downsides. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.